At this time, we would like to dismiss our children to head over to the Family Life Center for kids' worship. And if you have a child who is under the number three, it's hard to talk without a G, right? I'm going to give you all your G's back. You, you get your G privileges. Greg, you're back. <laughs> We're calling you Re. That's different. Yeah. You have to think more about what you're saying. You have to pay closer attention. This is your embodied activity for the day. We're in James, and we're talking about not just hearing the word, but doing it. If we hear it, this is good for following Christ. If this is what it means to be transformed, to go out and live what it is we're taught, rather than just forgetting it, it takes some effort. It takes our brains. It takes our bodies. In this case, not using a G, you got to maybe speak more slowly. Hey, that's in James too. Listen, be slow to speak, slow to become angry. I wanted you to have the experience of something that feels a little off. Because what James is going to advise followers of Jesus today is a little bit of a tall order. It goes against the grain quite a bit. It might, if you actually live it out, it'll feel a little bit unnatural. I wanted you to experience that. Prepare yourself for it. Sometimes it's just good practice. James has already given us a couple exhortations, some commands to go out and live that go against the grain, that will feel a little bit different than what most people do. You might, we're only one chapter into James, and a couple might already come to mind. Like he says, consider it pure joy whenever you face trials and temptations, and you're like, wait, what? Consider it joy? I consider it a nuisance. I consider it frustrating. I consider it something to avoid at all costs. Count it pure joy, James says. Okay, a little bit of a weird guy. He says, the humble, those who have been humbled, should take pride in their high position. Well, they don't have a high position. How can they feel like they do if they don't? He says, the faith of the religious, the most faithful-looking people, their faith, can actually turn out to be worthless. Whoa, how so? Tell us more, James. And he sounds a lot like Jesus. If you listen to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus kicks it off with the Beatitudes. Nod your head if you're familiar with the Beatitudes. Blessed are these people, and this is the consequence. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Wait, blessed? How are they blessed? Blessed are the wealthy. Blessed are the people who have power. Blessed are those who can wake up every day and say, what do I want to do? Because I can do it all. I can do anything. And Jesus said, actually, the ones who are really blessed are the poor, the meek, the humble, the humbled, those who have been persecuted. And it leaves us scratching our heads a little bit going, that's not the way the world works. That's not how people talk. That's the, there's something different that you're calling us to here. James is going to do the same thing in one very specific area. We're going to read 14, 13, 14 verses of James, but he's pretty much going to say one thing. 
He's gonna say, don't show favoritism. And he's gonna say it three different ways. <laughs> don't show favoritism. Here's an example. Don't show favoritism. Here's a rationale. Don't show favoritism. Here's a reminder. So listen for those three different ways of saying the same thing as we hear from James. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Shall we go on? Are you good? Because that could be it. That's the message. Don't show favoritism. Stop or keep going. It's up to you. You guys are very polite. I would have said, okay. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a, a gold ring and fine clothes and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, oh, here's a good seat for you, but you say to the poor man, you stand here, or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Don't show favoritism. That's the example. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters. Has God not chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom that he promised those who love him? This is the rationale. But you have dishonored the poor. Isn't it the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? He's talking about Jesus. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not commit murder. And if you do not commit adultery but you do commit murder, you've become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. He gives you this example, and it makes you wonder if it's based on a true story. He says, let's suppose a man comes into your meetings. Their meetings probably didn't look like our meetings. These were first century, mostly Jewish, people who had discovered that Jesus is the Messiah, and they started following him. The meetings, this could be in the synagogue. This could be Jews meeting in the traditional Jewish manner, the teaching, the, the gathering together. But either way, they come into a common meeting place. Maybe it was a house church. Maybe it was a meeting in a public place. It probably wouldn't have been more than just three or four families, a handful of people. Either way. So suppose somebody comes in and they look fancy. The translation of this, the, the person wearing a gold ring literally says, the gold-fingered man. Gold finger. <laughs> person with power and prestige and the look to back it up. Let's say he walks in and you give him a special seat. And then a filthy person comes in and you go, don't let Goldfinger know you're here. You go, you go over here at, at best, that's your spot. He says, that's not cool. Haven't you become judges? 
And she said, our job here is to triage worshipers and say, this kind of worshiper belongs here. This kind of worshiper belongs over here. Have you forgot something? Have you missed something? Have you left out the G? G stands for gospel now. Does the gospel say that's how you should treat people? No, not really. Let's say here at Tri-Valley, in our meeting, in our gathering place right here in this room, let's say a well-dressed family shows up and they're well-groomed. Come to find out later, they're from Texas. Ooh, a Texas family coming to our Church of Christ gathering on a Sunday morning. This could go very well. They have two kids who know how to sit quietly in church, know how to go to kids' worship when it's time to go to kids' worship. After the meeting is over, people literally tripping over themselves to meet this family, to greet them, to welcome them in and say, you'd fit in real nice here. On the same Sunday morning, there's another family that shows up to the meeting. They're not familiar with our customs. They're not familiar with our ways. They don't even come into the room, but they stand outside in our courtyard with a sign that says, we're hungry and we need help. Kind of like the people you see at Safeway or at the intersection, we need help. Not many people are inviting them to lunch. Not many people are clamoring to get to know them and exchange cell phone numbers. I think maybe in that situation, we just kind of want to, whatever we do with them, it's quick and it's maybe a one-time interaction. Is this a hypothetical example or is this something that really happened here at Tri-Valley? James is drawing our attention to this kind of behavior and we can all, even in this example or the example I gave, we go, uh, one, one way to act is, is not cool, but to love everybody equally, that's what we're called to do. This is how it ought to be. But even as I think about what would I do in the situation I described here at Tri-Valley, doesn't it make sense that I want to get to know the family from Texas and not the family with the sign? Doesn't it make sense that it's, it, one family is going to be more work? It's going to require more of me. I'm going to get more out of this other interaction. Is it just me confessing that that's where my heart is sometimes? Help me out. Don't leave me hanging out here, guys. Would anybody else... Maybe it feel the same way depending on whether or not you act that way. My point is, I think it's natural and understandable to want to impress the wealthy, the nice folks, the people who can do something for you. It's understandable. Maybe it's not the way of Christ, but it's something that a lot of people would do. And nobody would fault you for it you could get away with it, is kind of what I'm saying. Whether or not this is what was happening in the meetings to the, the Christians, the, the Jewish Christians that James was writing to, and again, this letter went all over the world, so how could he possibly know what was going on in each meeting, whether it was based on a one-time thing? He's reminding them of something that they seem to have forgotten, and that is the gospel, which is this great equalizer among people. The gospel comes along and says, yeah, everybody may live by this standard that says, favor the wealthy. Do those for people who can do things for you. Invite those who can invite you back. 
Very few people will just go the other way. But this is the way of the gospel. And I, can think, I think James is frustrated when he finds out that this is happening. It's kind of like, have you ever come to an understanding with somebody, maybe someone you live with, you said, all right, we've been doing things this way, but we're going to start doing things this way. Maybe you made a change in uh, your spending habits. Maybe you made a change in where the towels get hung up in the bathroom or something to do with your kids. I can think of a million examples, but I haven't asked Lisa for permission to share them. There's definitely been times when I come back and I say, I thought we talked about this, and I thought we decided this is what we're going to do. But now, you're doing this. Did something change? Did I get something wrong? Or are, you, are we just not doing the thing that we said we were going to do? It kind of reminds me of the situation that we read about in the New Testament, where there was this big question about, is following Jesus a Jewish thing, or is it an everybody thing? And Peter's got this vision where all these unclean animals come down that Jewish people used to avoid. And the boy says, kill and eat. These are animals you can eat now. And he goes, no, no, this feels like a test. I'm a good Jewish follower. No, Lord, I won't do that. And God's like, no, 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 do it. This is me opening the door to the Gentiles. The answer is, it's not just a Jewish thing. It's an everybody thing. Go to the Gentiles, eat at their tables. That was weird, because the Jews all decided, hey, we all said we weren't going to do that, right? Did something change? And the apostles, they wrestled with this. There was like a whole council, like an official important meeting, and they came to a decision, and James was involved in this. If you read Acts 11 and in the Acts 10 chapters and what Paul says about his interaction with Peter in Galatians 2, they said, it's an everybody thing. Don't separate yourselves from the Gentiles anymore. Okay, that's what we decided send out the word. And then Paul tells this story about going and meeting with Peter and other Christians who had a Jewish background. And he said, I went and I watched them eat. And Peter was only eating with the Jews. And there were Gentiles there too that he could have, should have been interacting with, but he only ate with the Jews. And Paul says, I confronted him to his face. Ooh, New Testament drama. I told him, didn't we decide the gospel is for everybody? Didn't we say we weren't going to do what we used to do? So what gives? What changed? Yeah. I think James is saying the same thing. He's saying the same thing to Christians. I thought we were following Jesus. Jesus from the manger. Jesus, the poor, from, from Nazareth. He didn't even have a tomb to be buried in. It had to be borrowed. He was poor. We have salvation in Christ. The gospel reverses the way things actually are, does it not? I thought we said that. I thought we decided that. What changed? Because what I hear is that in your meetings, you're doing what everybody else does. With those who don't follow Christ, they're just doing what comes naturally, favoring the wealthy, kicking dirt on the poor. You're insulting the poor when you do that. You're slandering the noble name of him whom, to whom you belong. I always mess up that part. You're slandering the name of Jesus. 
when you insult the poor. And so there's like a surface level application for this text, and that is don't favor the, the wealthy over the poor. You know, we're all saved by grace. We're all in the same boat. We're all sinners. We celebrate together. Those who have been forgiven little love little. Those who have been forgiven much and realize, hallelujah, praise the one who set me free. Go out and love to that degree. So there's the, how you behave in church, but I think that that's not even the real point. I think the deeper issue is that the Christians James is writing to left out the G. They forgot the gospel. They reverted back to living the way that everybody does, and James says, no, we can't forget the G, because the gospel is everything. It's our new code. It's how we see the world. Is it not? Because we're followers of Jesus. That's what I'd like us to be reminded about as we apply this in our lives. Do we live our lives in a way that leaves out the G, that forgets the gospel, that makes us be able to sing, and now let the weak say, I am, and let the poor say, I am, how? That doesn't make sense. The poor should say, I am poor. The weak should say, I am weak. Let the weak say, I am, hmm. Let the poor say, I am, why? Because of what? No other reason. Not because the poor are now better than the rich, or the rich are better than the poor. No. Fortunes are reversed when the gospel is involved. I want you to say, that's so gospel. Say that. When the weak are able to say, I'm strong because of what the Lord has done for us, that's so gospel. Poor say, I am rich, that's so gospel. Turn to somebody next to you and say, that's so gospel. Jesus was crucified as a criminal, and now he reigns as Lord of the universe. What is that? That's so gospel. That is so gospel. That never happens. The weak can say, I am strong. That's so gospel. The poor say, I am rich. The last are what? First and the blind see. That's right, Babs. That is very gospel. The deaf hear. Sinners become saints. You're getting it. Enemies become neighbors. The unclean are spotless because of what the Lord has done for us. What happens when we forget that? We do our best. We love a good rags to riches story, pull myself up by my bootstraps, yeah! This is what happens when you work hard and you try, that's not the gospel. The gospel is Christ laid down his life for us and called us to a new way of living as a church, in our meetings, outside of our meetings, a way that just identifies things. These reversals happen all the time, and the world should work like this so that we can say, ah, that's so gospel. Okay, there's like 10 other things I'm gonna, I could say, but I'm not going to say any of them. I want you to think about... Okay, well, one of the 10 things is this. There's this psychology term. 
that I'm only mildly familiar with, but it's called exposure. Exposure therapy. You might have heard of it. You may have had it recommended to you. If you have a fear of something, an anxiety about something, uh, just a, a worry, kind of a fear, they will expose you to it in manageable doses with uh, you know, the help of a therapist or something like that. Like if you're afraid of public spaces, they might say, okay, well, let's go out in a public space with some controlled factors so you're not just totally out there on your own. But if you expose yourself to the thing that you're worried about, that you're uncomfortable with, that it's not something you usually are experiencing, it can be good for you. You get more used to it. I wonder if... There's an application there for what we do with this text and how we remind ourselves of what the gospel is and living in a way that is so gospel. If I have, if I have an aversion to people who want to hold up their sign and ask me for something and uh, make me feel put on the spot, if, I, if it doesn't come naturally for me to have joy to help someone who is in need or to just be cynical and ah, the help won't actually help, wherever my heart is, then maybe what I need is not less of that or avoiding needs. Maybe I need to lean into that. Maybe if I haven't been living in a gospel way it's, and I haven't been exposed to it, it doesn't come natural. Maybe it never will, but I think anybody who's been following Jesus for a while can attest to the fact that the more you do it, the more it just seems like the normal way. And anything short of that seems like, whoa, why would I ever treat anybody like that? Why would I ever not forgive somebody with a hardness in my heart? Why would I hold on to that? I know where that leads. There's freedom in Christ. Forgiveness comes more naturally. Helping those, not judging people in our hearts or with our attitudes or with our actions, that just comes more natural the more that we do it. So there is an embodied response to this, is living more in a gospel way and just recognizing things in the world where it's like, oh, that should have been like this. I really should have stayed mad at that person. I really should have responded with anger, but I'm listening to James and I'm slow to become angry and I'm being intentional about how I'm living my life. And just like, like that is because of the gospel. It doesn't come from me. So I want you, as we kind of wrap up today, as I turn you loose to talk to the people around you about what it means to live this out, I want you to think of something in your life that you can do, I think on the screen, I have, I, I worded it, it's not something you can do, it's something that you will do, and I don't like will do questions because it's like, I haven't really thought about this and you're putting me on the spot and making me tell somebody, but if you say something out loud, you're more likely to do it. So think of it this way. What is one specific thing that you will do this week that is so gospel? And if you don't know by now, that just means something that's counterintuitive, that doesn't make sense outside of the shadow of the cross. And my guess is that you probably have already thought of something <laughs> from the start of this message or around the communion table. I think God's Spirit works that way. Prepares your hearts, floats things past your mind. You're like, why did I think about that person? I haven't thought about them in a while. Maybe God's doing something. But I want you to turn to somebody next to you and I want you to name one specific thing that you will do this week that is so gospel. And then invite you to pray about it with them. And once you're done with that, you are dismissed. That is what we're going to do today.
So, uh, and you can use the letter G once again. What is something you will do that is so gospel? Ready? Go. Ready? 